Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 678th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everyone. I'm Janice Norton with the Urban Farm, and I'm standing in for Greg Peterson, who is literally on the road tonight on his way to his new place. So I get to stand in with Bill tonight for seed saving. Tonight, we got a really fun topic that, you know, when we, when we started planning our, our annual themes and, and ideas and topics, this one was proposed by Belle, and I just love it. This is fun. So tonight's topic is myths in seed saving. And according to Webster's Dictionary, a myth is an idea or story that is believed by many people, but is not factual. Seed saving myths are plentiful and often are motivated by large corporations to increase seed sales and profits. Myths like you can't save seeds to hybrids, or you need lots of chemical inputs to grow successful seed crops. Seed saving is hard and should not be attempted by amateurs, or you need a lot of space to save seeds. Well, tonight with Bill McDorman, we will debunk these myths and others. We'll help you understand the origins of these stories and how they became a part of our general narrative. So tonight, I'd like you to tell us in the Q&A what ideas you think may or may not be true about saving seeds. And we're going to discuss those, those ideas. Bill, welcome to Seed Saving again, or Seed Chat. I'm so excited to be your co-host tonight. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Greg is literally on the road to find out. It's always hard not having him here, but I'm really, I'm looking forward to this. I think we'll, this will be really fun. And, you know, part of that is that we're both still beginners. We're both still learning. We're both, you know, there's pro there are myths out there that get us. And so I just want to welcome everybody into this myth busting that we hope to generate here tonight and especially put stuff you've been thinking about in the Q&A or questions you want to have answered because um, that's the most important thing to me tonight is uh, for both of us, I'm sure, is for you to get out of this what you need. And that's actually how we learn. So I am super excited because every time I participate in a seed chat, I learn a lot and I am I'm at that stage, which it's funny because it keeps coming back. I keep thinking I get through this stage and it keeps coming back of, you know, breaking through barriers in my understanding and being able to feel more confident doing things. And I'm at another one of those barrier breakings. So I'm excited to be learning. And it's fun doing it this way because what happens is the ideas and the questions that I don't realize are there get asked by somebody else. And then we discuss it, or you and Greg discuss it. I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. And I learned. So I'm I'm excited to pick your brain tonight. So while we are here, for those of you who are actually live tonight, as instead of listening to this in a podcast, we do have a link in the chat room. I'm going to tell you about it. Our Great American Seed Up website has a new blog article tonight. It's called Seed Bunchers or Seed Folders. 
This is a really fun article that you need to read. It was written by Belle Starr, Bill's wife, and Kari Spencer. And you'll find that by going to greatamericanseedup.org and looking for the button to go to our blog. And it's going to be the latest article. At least it was at the time tonight. Yeah, the article is really about the myths of seed saving. So it'll outline, it might jog your memory some, and hopefully get us all down the road to breaking through some of this stuff. Grown seed saving. I love it. Well, you know, I did in our introduction tonight, I did bring up some myths. So why don't we start with those and kind of get going? So yeah. the first one is you can't save seeds to hybrids. Right. Tell us about that. Why why well, is that yeah. out there? So my version of this is that when I had my a small seed company in central Idaho, one of the best gardeners in the valley that I grew up in had about an acre, just her backyard, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, she this was she was an entrepreneur, a business person, one of the busiest people in town. But she also had time to take care of her own garden, big garden. And I was talking to her one time, and of, of course, as I have been doing since 1978, I think, asking people if they save any of the seeds from the gardens. And she turned around and looked at me and said, "Oh, Bill, everybody knows you can't save seeds from American companies." And I, I was like, "Where did that come from?" And then I started thinking about it. And if you walk into Home Depot or, you know, one of the big boxes, which is where the, the majority of seeds are sold to gardeners, uh, independent garden centers are still a big place where people get them, but they're disappearing more and more as more big boxes move in. Mail order sales of seeds are only about, yeah, at most 15%, between 5 and 15% of the seeds. If you look at the seeds available um, in most of those places, the vast majority are hybrids. Yes. And so she was just saying your myth. Yeah, you know, she had, she had learned this myth that you can't save seeds from hybrids. So where did that come from? And why are we calling it a myth? I guess is the our charge here. <laughs> it came from the fact that it's true, actually. It's pretty factual for farmers, large scale and more market or industrial farmers who have to depend on the uniformity of their crop in order to make a living. It's got to be okay. the same every year, and it's got to be all the same at the same time. Mm-hmm. Or they need to know that they're all going to look that the broccoli is going to look like broccoli, or the peppers, the purple peppers will look like whatever it is. And so, if they save seeds from a hybrid variety, it's really possible, if not you know probable, that many of the varieties that are the plants that came up uh, would not have that kind of uniformity. That's just what happens when you plant the seeds from from what we call F1 modern hybrids. And so, you know, that's where the myth got started. Farmers so they, just can't afford the diversity to come back into their crops, basically. So, you know, in, in permaculture, we say the problem is the solution. The problem of not being able to save hybrids uh, because not being able to get the conformity, the consistency, the, the similarity in, in timing and ripening ripening and appearance. That is what they needed, but it's not what we want. Well, there's a big part of American gardening that has internalized this. And, you know, you see it a lot in the master gardener programs, you know, uniformity. And they talk about the rules that you need to get that uniformity. You don't save seed from hybrids. You separate varieties to um, so that they breed true, right? And you have minimum population sizes so that you keep enough diversity in your crop that you you have a vibrant or vital crop every year. And so those are all great rules and they all are factual in a way. They're all based on science. The problem is they're all, again, absolutely necessary probably for industrial agriculture. And much of it is necessary for smaller market size gardens gardeners who are taking their produce and selling it. But it, I would argue, has nothing to do with the vast majority of American gardeners who are just growing food to eat in their own backyard. And that's where diversity can play a real exciting role and bring you new th- things. And so the myth is- Opportunities. Us, right, opportunity. And so in a sense that the myth is keeping us from realizing you know, our full potential as gardeners in our own in our own year, because a couple of things fall out from that. If you can't save seeds from hybrids, guess what? You have to buy them every year, 
right? And that's where when you talked about corporations furthering these myths, there's, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's unmistakable. I, I don't know if there was any person sitting in a corporation somewhere that said, oh, we're going all hybrid so that we can up our sales, right? Because right now we're selling stuff to farmers and they really like it and they're just saving their own seeds and we never sell them seeds again. And so there was a thought about that, but it, that's what propelled the industry coming out of the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s was to find a way to get farmers to have to pay for the seeds every year the way they were now paying for fertilizers and equipment and tractor tires and all the other profit centers. In the initially, initially, that whole thought process was for the sustainability of their businesses, but there are enough people buying seeds that need seeds. The sustainability is there. There's there's just a profit margin that is needs to be increased each year. So if we if we go back to the community aspect, the regenerative, the the biodiversity potential of being able to save seeds and come up with new varieties, all of that plays into the question of whether or not, as individuals, we can or should try to increase our seed saving and grow new varieties, right? Well, we know now that if we save seeds from things that work in our yard, whether they're uniform or not, whether you're saving up from hybrids or not, they've experienced your environment. Mm -hmm. And more and more science about that is coming out through epigenetics over the last 20 years, that, that plants actually change themselves in one year to react to stresses. It gets 130 in Phoenix, say, or you get flooded or whatever, and the plants that survive go, oh, my God. And they've actually rolled up their DNA or unrolled their DNA to express mm -hmm. or to keep genes from being expressed, to secrete proteins and hormones that will help them survive those sorts of stresses. And we know now because of epigenetics that they can pass on that rolled up to their immediate offspring. It doesn't have to be sexual reproduction. It just helps. So if you've got tomatoes that made it through 120 degree summer in Phoenix, then those, you've got something that no one else has. And right. so that's the other fallout then from having to buy your seeds every year or buying hybrid seeds is you don't know where they were grown. You don't know what stresses they've been actually acclimatized to. And you're giving up your own potential to have your own tomatoes in your own yard, know who you are and, and how to grow there. And that's, you know, that's probably the, the saddest part of it. So, you know, another way of, of, of looking at it is that I, over the years, you know, I took like a thousand phone calls a year from gardeners for my little seed company this is before phones or even faxes. Right. I mean, before faxes or email or any of those. <laughs> if people had questions, they just called you. Right. So I talked to a lot of people for a lot of years and they, you know, number one thing is that they're always anxious. You know, gardening is supposed to be fun. That's a myth. Gardeners are nervous. Oh my God, what do I do with all my zucchini? Oh I'm my God, my there. Come up. Oh my, what do I do now? Or my neighbors planted a different kind or, you know, I mean, when I get calls, people are generally just, you know, and so it's like, take a deep breath. Remember the gardening is fun. We're grounding ourselves. <laughs> and, and because of this anxiety, they would go to unbelievable lengths to make sure that they were going to have the best garden that year. Right, they would start their seeds early. They would, you know, you, uh, spend all winter looking through catalogs, ordering the right varieties. They would buy the heat mats and the grow lights or the outdoor greenhousing, so they could get an early start, so they could set things up, so that they could maximize that whole experience for a year. And then they missed the point. For me, they would start all over with the seeds the next year, buy seeds from somewhere else that had nothing to do with their being acclimatized to where they are or have the tra specific traits or things that they could save seeds for right. and then start all over again. Whereas if you save your own seeds, think about it. Instead of just gardening for that year, you're taking the very best out of that garden for that the year. The ones that have figured out the weather changes, right. the ones that have figured out the highs and the lows and when the cold snaps come in and when the heat rushes come in. And, and they taste and better. Well, because well, they don't have to fight so hard. Right, well, and the, they taste better for you there's two tomato plants like exactly like that one. That one. Is save the, the seed of the one that tasted right? good. They all came out of your hybrid packet of tomato seeds, but one of them's better. So you right. save that one. And so you're now gardening 
year to year to year. Every year you're adding on to what you're doing and making it better year year to year. So when you buy seeds and you believe these myths that you can't save your own seeds, you've just cut off the largest potential you could have as a gardener or farmer. And that's just sad. That is. Every, everything that you were talking about, how to how to keep doing that that growth each year and get better and better. To me, that just sounds like a, like a story that continues and like, ooh, let's add a the next chapter. And this is it sounds fun. Yeah. Sounds fun. Well, so you know, one of the other great myths is that I don't have time. I'm a modern creature. We're supposed to specialize. You know, I'll do this. I'll get on the internet and do my blogs, or I'll you know go to work here or there. And there are people. Janice, there are experts out there that are doing plant breeding that are doing it better anyway than I would ever be able to figure out. I don't have time. So I'll just buy my seeds and plant them. Right. Be a great gardener. Right. And that's probably where most American gardeners are. Right. That's the the idea of how much work it takes to do some of this gets built up in our head and we stop ourselves. Right. I've used that excuse so much. I don't have time. But of yeah. course, I do cooperative farming with Raymond, my friend Raymond. And he would laugh right now because he yells he yells at me to stop saying that. I do say that a lot. I don't have time. <laughs> well, so, so here's where I get back undermining in that myth. It actually happened to me. I went to Siberia in 1989 looking for seeds. This was behind the Iron Curtain. This was Soviet Union. And I went... Five time zones on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, way out into Siberia. I was looking for coal-tolerant seeds. And I ended up in a city called Novosibirsk. And Novosibirsk means New Siberia. That's in Russian, right? And it was a city that was built overnight almost, literally, in World War II by Stalin to save his brain trust, he called it. So they built eight major universities. In the middle of Siberia, no, they, they literally cut a square out of the taiga, out of the forest there, and built this city. Wow. And so well, we, it's still there. And there's like uh, 70,000 PhDs that live there, eight major universities. It's, out, it's like Berkeley. Wow. Just this incredible, you know, hap, hip and happening place. And you know, instead of Birkenstocks, they, they, they have snow boots? Well, they all walk, you know, they get a walk to work. <laughs> And there's uh, it's 1.4 million people. They've got modern subways, but they all have part of the Soviet era was that everybody had access to a garden, a space. Well, it was a, a space a plot. for their dacha, they call them, their little summer cabin or whatever. It's just a tradition. It continues in Eastern Europe and Russia to this day. They're beautiful. And they would organize them into little villages and they would all have a garden. They all, Everybody I, I met, Everybody on every level, from chemical engineers to professors to the guys that ran the subways, all the way down, everybody, garden. Every That's just part and parcel of what you do there. In fact, there are statistics now, it's hard to get, you know, hard facts now, but up to 70%, and it used to be 80% of the fresh fruits and vegetables consumed in Russia come from these dacha gardens. People grow their own. You know, if you think about myth busting, that we need this huge industrial agriculture to feed everybody. Well, yeah, you can do it that way. Or we know that fresh is better. It's better health, right? Better flavor. It's just better for We know that 70, 80% of us could grow our own. That's it. Because, and this is a modern city, okay? We just need to allocate the land, organize a bit the way they did. But the, but the most surprising thing, Janice, and this changed my life, was that every single gardener I met saved their own seeds. These are busy people. It wasn't this myth that, oh, I don't have time. It was like, Beal, Beal, this is gardening. There's no, why garden if you don't do that? True. I I actually do save seeds for the stuff that I grow and I'm having a lot of fun doing this. I was just talking to you earlier today about my cauliflower plant. And um, it's like, do it's kind of become an aphid trap at the moment, but it's still making seeds. So I was like debating, do I go ahead and do I go ahead and pull it out and let it start, you know, doing the drying or do I let it save? And what was your advice to me on that? Leave it. <laughs> Leave it. Let it go. Yeah. Actually. Well, not only is it an aphid magnet, so it'll yeah. keep aphids off your other plants. In the end, if and when it makes seeds, they'll be aphid proof seeds, which yeah. is obviously what you need. Right? Very much. <laughs> I can hear John Navazio. He's a breeder at Johnny Selected Seeds in the back of me. Go, go hard on it, Bill. 
go hard on them. You know, <laughs> we've got stuff in your garden and, and there are conditions that are really difficult. It's too hot. It's too right. it got flooded. You know, in Tucson, we get these monsoon rains and I go in at our monsoon bed. They had basin gardens there. It would be like eight inches of water. You, could, you barely see the carrots sticking up through the, it's a, as somebody said, it's a little carrot patty. Bill, <laughs> you know, it was like, but that's not, I want, I want carrots, you know, but, but if they make it and they produce seeds, you've got seeds that will make it through that. They right. already know what that is like. That's what we're talking about. Right. So every time you see a disaster in your garden, like Janice said to me earlier today, like the aphids are just, you know, wow. You go as a seed saver, you go, thank you. We're going to get aphid resistant seeds now, you know, I hadn't I had not thought about the aphid resistance. And so I'm really excited to hear that. I did know about the aphid trap part. And so I was definitely letting that go. Fortunately, I had already got the broccoli off. So this was, you know, on, on a couple of my plants. So this is the leftovers and they were so, not, sorry, not broccoli, cauliflower. They were so tasty. Yeah. And I'm like, I have to save these seeds. It was yummy, yummy. It's good that, you know, what's happening. And so stage two would be if it doesn't work. Say they just totally eat and you don't get seeds. Right. It's not strong enough. It hasn't figured it out yet. Then uh, next year, plant different varieties of cauliflower. Mix them up. Whatever it takes. You know, Joseph Lofthouse would find 40 different varieties, mix them all together and throw them out into the backyard and see which ones work and see which ones will make it and see which ones make seeds. Because that's number one. It's got to survive and make seeds for you. Otherwise, it's not part of your deal. And then secondarily, rogue out all the ones that don't taste good. And then right. you've got, those are the only two selection criteria we really need at this point. Will it work? Do I like it? Yes. All the other hierarchy of rules that make seed saving so complicated that allows them to write 25 to $55 how to save seed books that are this thick. Some mm -hmm. of which start the table of contents start with Latin. I don't want to learn Latin. I learned Latin, you know? I mean, I got my, my hands slapped in grade school years ago for not learning Latin well enough, right? I just want to save seeds. And I think that's what we've learned is all we need to do is save seeds from the survivors and the ones we like. That's really all you need to know. And that's how, actually, I usually say this once on every show, that's how we got everything, folks. If you think I'm just passing smoke, how do you think we got from inedible wild plants, which is what the planet was full of two or three or 10,000 years ago, and made them into all the food crops that we now know, for whether they be carrots or wheat or corn or whatever. Mm -hmm. We would call all of their ancestor plant, all of the plants that formed those, most all of them, inedible. And we turned them into these beautiful things. That happened over millennia with people just doing what I talked about. Right. It worked, and I liked it. Right. And I saved the seed. So, so in a sense, so we're just rejoining, you know, this great tradition. And that's what pisses me off about these myths. I mean, because we got all these modern people that are so stressed out. And we know that uh, local food is better. We know it's better for the economy. It's better for you health-wise. It's better for the environment. Less food miles, gas miles for the, the yeah. getting it to from where it's growing location to its table. If it's just a few steps, it's got to be better. Gotta be better. You know, they ran numbers when I lived in Tucson, even in Tucson, Arizona, which, you know, it can be really dry in the summer. There's enough water that falls on Tucson every year. If it's captured and held in rain barrels or whatever, could grow enough food on this Dacha scale gardens for everybody in town. You know, people say, you know, that are afraid the industrial food system's going down. I would say, you don't be afraid of that. Just plan for it. <laughs> Dacha is spelled D-A-C-H-A. Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to be making a little note about that in my garden. This is my Dacha garden. Well, I'll tell you, I almost didn't come home or I wanted to go back. I did not like the Soviet Union. I did not like having soldiers everywhere. And there was kind of this heaviness. And when I went to a government facility and asked about getting some seeds, they said, yet, yet. Wow. <laughs> they Scary. Go, you permits. It was a bureaucracy. I had to get the permit. Of course. 5,000 kilometers away, you know, in order to, to get seeds. It was like, it's a nightmare. On the other hand, hanging out with 70,000 really smart, well-educated people, half of whom spoke English. The other half spoke German. Now, those are the two choices in in Russian schools at the time. For the secondary language, yeah. They all garden, they all save their own seeds. 
you know, many had traveled around the world. You know, it's part of their science thing. Wow, I go, I could hang out with a bunch of <laughs> They had read Thomas Jefferson. They believed in democracy. It was like Berkeley. They were so oh. far away from the centers of power. They were, and then they start telling stories late at night. They'd be drinking their vodka and they go, Oh, you're in, you're in your well, element. Bill, do you realize that everybody that was sent to Siberia as a prisoner, either early on by the czar and then later by, you know, the, the Bolsheviks or what became the, the Communist Party, everybody that was exiled to Siberia, stayed once they got there. Nobody ever went home. They went, whoa, the fishing, the hunting, the mushroom gathering. You guys got great gardens. This is really a cool, and look at, nobody's here to like be really down on the way you're thinking. Although that's not totally true. I'm, I'm, you know, generalizing some, but in relationship to living back in European Soviet Union, it was a party. Oh, wow. So there's all these stories. They're all going, yeah, welcome home, man. This is where we're all hiding. It's great. Come in, grab a chair, yeah, sit down. Knows about us. Nobody cares. But oh, wow. it's central to their whole thing was, was seed saving. So, Well, let's talk about another myth. One of the other ones that we have. Uh, okay, so before we go to the next one, if you listeners out there have a, an idea of something that you've heard that seems to be a tight, tried and true thing about seed saving, Go ahead and throw it in the Q&A. If there's something that you've heard that you're like, yeah, that can't be true, throw it in the Q&A. We'll talk about it. Okay. So one of the other ones that popped up is that you need a lot of chemical inputs to grow successful seed crops. You need to just keep putting those nutrients and fertilizers and, and whatever else they come up with. What's the deal with that? Well, it, the problem is the solution, only in this case, the solution was the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Their solution to increase pro that increased profits was to hybridize everything and, and sell uniform varieties. Mm -hmm. And when they first started doing this in the 30s and the 40s, there's all sorts of papers and studies done that um, hybrid corn was the first crop to really catch on as a hybrid. But for its first 20 years, it didn't catch on. And why? Because it wasn't local. It wasn't a local variety that was adapted. And so they would bring in these hybrid varieties from somewhere else, and they just didn't work very as well as the old tried and true varieties that they had their own stories. They had saved their seeds up to that point. And so they made up for that with chemicals right. and inputs. You know, if you, they learned that if they could create this exact same planting conditions for corn, wherever they planted it, laser leveled fields, just the right amount of water pour on the chemicals or whatever, they could up the yields and they overcame this problem of people questioning whether or not that corn was adapted to their area. When hybrid corn first started, the first idea was that there would be thousands of different hybrid corn varieties. Right. By the time we got to the 80s, there was four major inbred varieties that were growing all the hybrid corn in the United States. And so they, you know, why? Because the companies just kept getting bigger, marketing better, selling the whole packages, and they did get bigger yields. Now, when a plant grows, it takes nutrients out. And the same plant and or its or its clone is going to want the same nutrients. So when you're monoculturing your plants like that, you're going to be taking the same nutrients out of the soil all the time, right. which means that soil is going to be depleted of that nutrient which therefore you're going to have to put the stuff in to replace it. If you have a high nitrogen absorbing plant, you're going to want to need to be doing that. And so that's where the formulas came in, right? The, the inputs. So number one, they quickly learned that they couldn't put everything back. That's why we, that's why they rotate into soybeans. <laughs> ah, so they, they do, do nitrogen do fixing. So, so the crop rotation, so lots of times there's a grain. Sometimes they'll only grow corn every third year. Ah, uh, okay. You know, so they've never figured out how to do corn, 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 corn. The only people I've ever learned, known that can grow corn in the same field every year are the Hopi. And why is that? Prayer. Oh, their relationship to the plants and the ground Prayer, makes sense. Um, and less stress each year, maybe. Monsoonal floods that bring new minerals. Right. Yeah, I don't, I, I still haven't figured out how they do that. That's mm. still one of the big mysteries, but Lee... Gawanasani from the second Mesa told me that uh, he had been in his grandfather's field every year for 60 years. He grew up growing 
learned how to grow corn from his grandfather, been in that field. That's his field now. That's where I was with him when he told me this. And he said, there's been corn in this field every year for 60 years. Well, I, I was trying to figure out how to too. I bet it's delicious too. Well, it's their corn. You know, it's um, some people would say, oh, you know, it's not sweet corn. It's the corn that they use to make their peaky bread and their tortillas or, and to survive on. And they have for what, a thousand years. Wow. Same place. And so, but that, yeah, I, you know, I don't know how, what, but corn's never figured, figured that out. But that general principle that we can cover up and make uniform where we plant it using chemicals and modern irrigation techniques allows them to spread these uniform varieties adapted to those conditions out over larger areas than they probably should. And I say probably should because in 1980, a blight hit the U.S. corn crop and destroyed a billion dollars worth of corn. Why? Because it was all the same. (laughs) And it didn't have a resistance. Whereas in 1920 or 30 in that same area, there would have been hundreds, if not a thousand different varieties of corn. So one or two crops would have been affected. What would have been resistant probably. Yeah. to what they were doing. And so, yeah, it's just, so that's where, you know, so people want a context for what we're talking about. I'm not talking about over uh, taking or overcoming industrial agriculture. The rules they have are the rules and they are hard and fast and they, you can get a PhD and you can do tremendous things in what they're doing. The problem is we're running into its biological limits We know that we can't keep using the amount of water we do. We know that it produces up to two thirds of the greenhouse gas emissions, which is going to be another problem, which has caused the problem that they're losing huge amounts of the growing areas or they're moving, right? Right. The whole U.S. corn and wheat crop will be in Canada, you know, throughout what climate change is doing. And we won't have it at all. We'll look more like the Mojave Desert, you know, across the middle part of our country. And if we keep having a reliance on these inputs, these chemical inputs, most of which are being, or several of those particular elements are being imported in from other countries, that is going to be at risk, especially in our global country, our situation right now. Well, I, that, what I read in the business press is that the price just doubled Oof. for those things this year. So oh. what we're seeing is this, you know, what we've been talking about for all these years is starting to take on more of a relevance. So how do you grow food without all those inputs? Well, it's really simple. You adapt it to where it is. You let it use all of its biological wonder and magic. So what's the best way to do that? Get as many different varieties into your environment as you can, because you never know where there would be genes that are adapted to whatever condition you might have. You don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody ever did systematic trials on all of our modern food crops everywhere we live. Nobody's ever done that. We just went off and running with these hybrids in this modern food system. And we never, you know, there were people in probably all every valley in our country, you know, in the mid 1800s to the early 1900s that knew a lot about which cucumbers and other varieties and carrots and things to grow because why? Because they brought them from Europe and they they went down to a farmer's market in their town and they got other varieties that were working better with their immigrant families. And they did a lot of testing or whatever, but guess what? We shared information. We threw away 90% of those varieties worldwide. You know, they're gone. And Joseph Lofthouse talks about that in his book, Land Race Gardening, about survival of the fittest. That's what you're talking about, is to allow the multiple varieties to be right. in one space. And the best ones there are the ones you're going to save seeds and you're going to replicate those the next year. Get as many different kinds of things as you can and mm-hmm. them all up and plant them where you are. And as somebody said, isn't that expensive? And God, it's so complicated. And Joseph, how, what kind of greenhouses do you have? And all this stuff, he goes, I just plant them. If they don't work, they don't work. I don't have time for all of that, right? You know, that's He's the, not stressing on it. Die. Then you know you don't want to grow it because it won't grow easily where you are, whatever it is. But those things that do work, start then tasting. Start looking right. at them, you know, for, for how well they do, how well they survive pests or droughts or heat, and save the ones that you like to eat most. Or like Joseph does, he started growing squashes that were just the right size for a dinner. 
for himself because that he lives by himself and he was wasting all this squash. So he's got these little squashes. So he selected for that. They're good for me. I like what they taste like and I've got little squashes. And then he notices some of them were really hard to cut open. So he stopped saving seeds to those. So he's got <laughs> cut open small squashes. Whoa. He's got a variety that was a mix of, I don't know how many planted 30 or 40 squashes to begin with. They all mix. Who cares? You know, he's got his squash that works for him where he is. That's the land race or heirloom of the future, right? Yeah. And that's where we're going, people. We're going to need those because it's really possible that that's all we'll have. You know, and that's another myth is that you can't plant squashes together. Yeah. I, I, I'm unfortunately not stopping. That's not stopping me. I have a several that are together and somebody came and was like, you can't plant that many different squashes together. And I'm like, why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> Why? I'm not See, particular. This, this, this technological, you know, this is what right. we're trained and we're trained. And this kind of thinking works really well when you're programming computers or you're doing accounting, or you're doing all those other high function things. And it has absolutely no relevance to us growing, continuing the 10,000 year old tradition of trying to find out what food we like best that will grow for us where we are. Right. That's what we need to get back to and try to do and and maybe come down out of that left lobe or whatever we call it a little bit. And we know we're happier when we do that. Yeah. We know that we put our hands in the ground. The, there's actually hormonal changes. Michael Abelman talks about that in the podcast that the Urban Farm does that you can find on the Urban Farm website. In the patient program now. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it just seems to solve so many problems. I remember Don Tipping, who owns Siskiyou Seeds, who's a huge proponent of that and has taken that farther with a seed company than anybody I've known. He's in Williams, Oregon, and people ask him questions. I went to his seed academy and he'll say, oh, really great, complicated question. Guess what? The answer is really simple. Just grow and save your own seeds. You just come down out of all that complexity, all those rules. Can Stop I, overthinking. I'm not breaking the rules. It won't be true. The people won't know what it is. I'm going to lose, you know, who cares? You've got your food and you're starting, and you're starting to make up your own story about it. Especially if you're growing for yourself and your family. I mean, if you're growing for others, you can have fun with that. But if you're just growing for yourself and your family, I mean, stop overthinking it. Yeah, see, and that's the key. It's small gardeners and small market farmers who have always been the ones that could afford diversity and, and take advantage of it. Because okay. the worst thing that can happen to you, if everything messes up and crosses, you don't follow any of the rules that are in the seed saving book. The worst thing that can happen, usually, is you still get food to eat. You're still mm -hmm. eating it. You don't know what it is. You don't know what it, it doesn't look, you know, the pump zini doesn't look like a zucchini <laughs> right. you know, or the, the broccoli, right? You know, it's got all these weird frilly leaves down below the broccoli head, you know, who knows what it looks like or what to call it. That's true, but you still have something to eat. And out of that can come something really exciting. If you're, if you've changed the way you think and you're looking in there now as an adventurer, to help us because that's where real gardening is. And then, as I said, just to bring this back around, you get to take the best out of that garden and bring it into the next year. Yeah. And the next year and the next year. And pretty soon you get to be like Dave uh, Christensen, who my, a dear friend of mine who lives in Montana, who tried to find corn for his own garden there uh -huh. and, and started growing some of the uh, Native American varieties. But they didn't work as well. Some were short. There were lots. There was a real lack of uniformity for what he, he was trying to grow corn for his family. Had a dream one night and saw these two beautiful, long black ears of corn. They were about 18, you know, 16, 18 inches long, perfectly uniform and perfectly black, shiny kernels. This profound dream. And it wasn't too many days later, he was on his way home from school. He was going to Montana State University in Bozeman. And he was walking and there's a little neighborhood corner grocery store. And he walked into the grocery store and it was that time of year and they had corn there and they had Indian corn. And there were two beautiful long black ears of corn in there sitting on the thing. And he, it just went boom. And he didn't buy them. And he woke up a few weeks. You know how we all do this. You wake yes. up and go, oh, my God. Oh, no. Back down there, they're gone. Nobody even knows where they came from. Never could find them. 
Oh. And so he set out on an adventure. He's still on. He's in his 70s to find those ears of corn. Mm -hmm. So he ended up starting with 72 varieties of corn. He got just what we're talking about. He was ahead of his time. Get all the diversity you can. Modern varieties, all the Native American varieties. And, and mixed them all together and planted them out and started selecting corn. And so the variety he released to the world first was called Painted Mountain which is grown in, it's even grown in Antarctica on all of the continents, all over the world. It's been called the earliest, best tasting, fastest maturing corn on the planet. That's Dave's little Painted project mountain. to find his own. And then he started seeing the black kernels, started selecting them out. And now he has, he calls it black Murano. And it's there. just about to be released. I think. Oh, how exciting. Okay, that sounds fun. See, so does it sound stressful? That sounds amazing. So, Throw all the mess out and start gardening. This is right? what you can do. Dave right? Christensen has given us, it would take, I'll never be able to duplicate the work and the time and the energy it took Dave to create Painted Mountain. Guess what? It's a gift. So you know, if you want to give humanity and your children and your grandchildren a gift, get to work. Just save seeds every year from something you really like. One or more of our listeners are going to create the next Painted Mountain seed, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, Carol Depe took Painted Mountain uh -huh. right out, and she's uh, taught genetics at Harvard for 25 years. Uh -huh. She's just a bonker seed saver. <laughs> right. Lives in Corvallis, Oregon. She noticed after a while, after she's like the scientist, that some of the kernels in Painted Mountain had better flavor than other kernels. Kernel to kernel, she was comparing. He was just eating separately all the different kernels colored kernels and came up then with a painted mountain selection of her own that tastes better more flavor she just selected it for flavor and that would work where she is in corvallis oregon oh, so that's so you don't even have to do the next painted mountain you can just take painted mountain and take it home and start working on it yourself you know and in a sense that's what we're all doing there is ten thousand years behind most of these crops and we should be generally thankful. We should have a prayer. And I'm not talking about any specific religion. I'm just talking about being so Attitude. grateful that you're speechless at the gift that you've been given to plant these seeds every time. And then take on the responsibility that that gift you know, embodies and do the same thing. At least don't go like throwing your old seeds away and don't you know that's another one of the myths man seeds last for decades you know again that's another thing to get you to buy them every year right right and don't don't bring them in from places you don't know where they were grown every year i mean bring in diversity we should all bring in all the diversity we can wherever we are because we don't know what's in there right. we are our regions most of the regions in the United States, except maybe Appalachia. Appalachia has got more food crop diversity than any other area of the United States. Greg, Pe thank you, Greg Peterson. He's moving right into the smoking mountains, <laughs> you know. I don't think he knows that, but that's, you know. The rest well, of us. let us know. The rest of us, you know, in the Southwest, we have varieties that go back thousands of years, thankfully, to the Native American communities that are still farming here. So we've got some stuff that we can tap into that's really adapted here. And then we've got like the, the wheat that uh, Father Kino brought 400 years ago that's been grown in the Southwest, white Sonora wheat. So we've got stuff to start to work with, but make no mistake, they are all gifts of uh, unimaginable proportions. The stories of the seeds in everyone's individual regions, write them down. I mean, if you can find those stories, Write them down because that's going to be a key element of the of the value right. of the seeds that you're going to be offering to the next generation. You know, we have another myth I want to cover before we go off tonight. What about the idea that you need, and Sydney is actually asking this as well, you need a lot of space to save seeds. Well, there's, there's some truth to that. There's some truth. Well, so there, but we, we're permaculturists, right? <laughs> yeah. Look around it. So one of the things you, you know, so if you want to simplify your problem, if you don't have a lot of space or you want to simplify the problem, start with one thing. So you need space to grow out one thing. Mm -hmm. If you start with a self, a largely self-pollinating plant, like tomatoes, peppers, peas, beans, or lettuce, then you don't need a lot of space. 
because they'll pollinate before their flowers even open. Right. You don't have to worry about cross-pollination, something coming in. So you don't need space between your different varieties and somebody else's. And those seeds again were? Right. Which ones were they? Which were the seeds? Tomatoes, peppers, peas, beans, and squash. Uh, and lettuce. Excuse lettuce. Me. Tomatoes, lettuce. peppers, peas, beans, and lettuce. Right. So start there. Those are the easiest. In my little um, book, uh, Basic Seed Saving, that's it. Start with the easy ones. Learn how to do it. Get your, then you can start applying other techniques if you need to. If you're, if you're growing one of the outcrossing crops, which are crops that need pollen from other plants, you need those other plants around. And depending on what crop you have, you may need a, a, a number of those plants. So you need even more space. But there are workarounds for that. So I'll tell you one of the niftiest tricks that I heard was that um, I think um, Steve Peters, Oh, no. It, yeah. Steve Peters is a, a, a different friend of, of mine, but I'm trying to think of uh, uh, Peter Seed and Research, the gentleman that did that, used to grow out. He would do crosses with tomatoes. And you could do this, say, with a hybrid tomato because there's lots of diversity in that next generation. So if you save seeds from a hybrid tomato and uh -huh. you want to see if any of them look like your original hybrid because those are the ones you really like, Right. Um, you know, the more plants you grow out, the better. And so maybe 200 would be great. But who has room for 200 plants? Not me. So what he is to do was get a pot, like a, a five-gallon pot, and plant 50 different seeds in the pot all the way around the edge. And 50 little tomato plants would come up. And then as soon as they started coming up, he would trim them so that they would grow out and over the the pot at that point and grow out each in their own direction. And he would let them grow. He'd keep them trimmed and let them grow until he had a tomato that was growing on each one. Then he could see what color it was, ah. see if he could get the characteristics. Tim Peters was the gentleman. And Tim I'm Peters. Like, yeah, my apologies to Steve, but Steve knew um, Tim. Tim Peters. Yeah, he would do 50. And then so say he's looking for orange. And he'd look around the 15, there's only one or two oranges. And then he would immediately trim off all the rest of them and let, and maybe even transplant one out or just let the two that he was looking for grow in the pot. But that's, you know, tricks like that. You don't need, you know, figure that's out what you're looking for. You don't, you're not growing out the whole crop. You don't need the space to do that. All you're looking for is color or flavor or whatever it is. I mean, if you, you know, you could even taste all 50 tomatoes, get one tomato on each of those 50 vines that are out there, taste it and see which ones you like the best and only save the seeds from those and then go on the next year. And so, you know, there, if you're that's growing mind-blowingly ingenious well yeah it is my tim peters was a mind-blowingly genius plant breeder who was misunderstood never uh, compensated for what he was doing never really lauded for his breakthroughs there's a few people in and around the industry that remember him fondly because he was a brilliant and he's passed no no, no he's he not. Just, uh, completely i you know he disappears from time to time i think the last i talked to him peters down in we Texas. love you. Yeah, we love you and, and we need you more than ever, you know, and all your stuff. His stuff's still out there. Peter Seaton Research, you see things that are attributed to him so cool. in a really proper way, as they should be. So if you want to save seeds from a biennial, which are the, the uh, carrots, you know, turnips, radishes. You got to let them grow through two you seasons. Can, you can grow them mm -hmm. at the end of the season, pull them all up. Look at them, see which ones you really like, which carrots, you know, visually, right, that you really like. And if it's a carrot, you can cut the bottom off and taste them all. So then oh. pick out. So see which ones you like the shape of, then cut off a little piece, find the ones that are really sweet that you like, save those tops. With beets, you want to take a little slice out of the side. You don't want to cut the bottom because it's got a taproot, but take a little slice and you can taste those. All right. And then, so maybe you get um, 10 or 12, say you've got a small garden, you only have room because when you plant carrots or beets, especially you, or even radishes, you want two or three foot spacing in between them. If you're going on for carrots, you only need three or four inches. Right. But if you're going on for, for seed, you need two or three feet because they get these huge, big flowers, right? So save as many as you have room for and then move them out of your garden 
to what Benjamin Farr, who's a permaculturist from California, taught me, what he called his edge row. And that's where he did all his seed saving. So people go, oh, you know, I don't have time or space or energy to save seeds. Well, just, you know, save a few of the best and move them way out to the fence and space them properly. And then they'll, uh, and you can, if you live in a temperate climate, you can plant them right then. If it's going to freeze, you know, really hard where you are, put them in damp sawdust or sand and put them in the refrigerator for the winter or a root cellar. Get them out there next spring and plant them all. And uh, they'll produce the seeds that second year. So you don't need a lot of space for that. You're not taking up garden space because your garden, you can grow carrots there again. And you can do that even if you, you don't want varieties to cross because first year carrots don't produce flowers. They won't cross with the ones you have flowering. And so, you know, you start to get down in here and it starts, it's like a forest and you start finding <laughs> right? And you go, oh, well, that relates to that and I can do that. And that's why, you know, start simply. Pick one crop you really love. And if you don't have a lot of time and it's your first time, pick one of those five easy ones, you know, tomatoes. But who doesn't love tomatoes? 94% of all American gardens have tomatoes in them. Start with a tomato. That's how the whole um, Richmond Seed Library got started. Everybody did tomatoes and peppers for a few years and then added in lettuce. You know, they were saying, well, you guys don't know what you're doing. And you're going to mess up all the genetics. Well, guess what? We have self-pollinating plants. We don't have to care about that. Right. But after a few years, people started branching into other varieties, started teaching courses at the Richmond Seed Library, how to save your cabbage seeds, how to save your corn, how to save. Why? Because they'd done the research, done their own, and now could give that skill back to the community. That's Just cool. a little peek into organically how we can grow this thing out of towns, even like um, Surprise, Arizona. <laughs> HOA Central, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's where I live. Not in surprise, but I do live in HOA Central. i excited about my tomato plants that are growing right now. One of them is doing okay. I'm excited about how it's, how it's popping up. I have one that popped up and I knew when it popped up that it was a tomato and I was laughing because I'm like, I did not plant that tomato. It came from a bird or something. So it is already acclimated from another plant nearby that was locally acclimated to my season. So it's doing phenomenal. It's just, it's prolific as heck right now. And I'm like, this is so exciting. You know, so, so many times if we just get out of the way and observe more, mm. we see things like that. And so, and, and so for that's, all you people that's that are- a lesson to learn. Earlier, I was talking about epigenetics and, you know, a pseudoscience. I mean, you know, I, it was discovered by a woman first of all, and it took about 30 years for them to finally recognize her brilliance, Barbara McClintock, and give her a Nobel Prize, you know, right. for, for her discovery. So that's kind of validating. Um, but if you don't, you don't even have to believe me about, you know, this idea that things will adapt. Um, just look at the volunteers that come up in your garden. How do you explain that then? Volunteers are always better. Because they're already acclimated. There you go. You know, we do have a question here. I'm going to come All to you. Right. This is from Laura. She says, have you found the tastiest veggies are also the best looking, biggest, most attractive, etc.? Or do you just have to taste them all? You oftentimes it's the opposite of that. <laughs> it's the smaller wrinkled up, you know, so in deformed, the, you know, the, the, ma the macro explanation to that is that I'll just use tomatoes as an example. And so I was in Siberia behind the iron curtain and everybody grew tomatoes and everybody there's a huge comp national competition who had the earliest and best tasting tomato everybody that's all people talked about they didn't have the super bowl they couldn't you know they didn't have sports betting right we're, they're humans they were all trying in their dacha village especially to have the earliest and best tasting tomato so you get about two million gardeners you wall them off from the outside world so they can't buy commercial seeds. That's how the Soviet Union was. There's no catalog companies, mm -hmm. right? So all they have their seeds being passed around. So all you can do is select for the best tasting tomato that comes up earliest in your garden. It's a genetics laboratory for flavor. For 70 years, walled off, that the world will never reproduce. When I met Dr. James Baggett at Oregon State University, who was one of the great last great public plant breeders, and he was working on a tomato called Oregon Spring. And he said, well, of course the flavor came from a Russian tomato. 
You know, all tomato <laughs> breeders know that that's where the flavor comes from, right? So that's flavor. In that same period of time, that same 70 years, in the United States, we learned how to grow tomatoes, ship them an average 13, mechanically harvest them, put them on a truck, drive them 1,300 miles, and have them look good on a shelf for two weeks. Right. Unbelievable breeding breakthrough to be able to do that with tomatoes. Flavor? Mm. You know, texture, we gave all that up. But they were so pretty. The best, the best looking, largest selling tomatoes in the United States, most of the time, have nothing to do with flavor. Siberian tomatoes, however. They look good on camera, though. Well, that's where, <laughs> you know, we're, that's where this mindset we have to. So one, right. but use your tongue. And it's harder to do this than we think. When Joseph Lofthouse says, you know, see what works. Be a survivalist in your garden. Go hard on it. John Navazio, the great plant breeder in, at Johnny's, right? Let nature go hard on what you've got. Go easy on yourself with the amount of time you have. I didn't get time to get out there and weed. Okay. What worked without weeding? Right. And taste good. Learn how to taste your own vegetables again. And you'll end up with stuff way better than most of the stuff around. Then go down to your local seed library or local seed exchange, where you can find people that are already doing this. And if you don't have a local one, go to a regional one. She's had a fantastic one with hundreds of people in Ogden, Utah, you know, and start asking. And all of a sudden you're, you're with your peeps, right? <laughs> right. Learning and you're vibrating with them. They go it's sharing here. I did 15 years work on this tomato. You got to try it. It's, it's awesome. And I live just down the street from you, right? Now we're talking gifts right? Buy tomatoes, give them their seeds, give them your credit card. How like old is that, man? Right. Well, folks, we're coming to a close tonight. We hope that you enjoyed this tonight. Bill, I am always in awe of the stories and the experience that you've gone through. So I'm grateful to have you able to share this with you again tonight. Um, I'm kind of grateful Greg's not here because I got to do it. But uh, <laughs> Well, you be- know, I've often been a fan of getting more people to talk. Right. Well, if you're yeah. listening out there and you want to uh, do this, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure Greg would agree with that, but I'm, you know, I'm into it. I mean, I'm, I think we are. And that's why you're such a joy to be around because you're Thank learning, you. you're open and you're, and that's all we, that give reminds me, me that I am too. You know, I have so much to learn. About give me you. more. Give me more. Somebody asked me, they uh, accused me of being an expert. <laughs> and I said, but I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I said, well, but you know, you've been here around here for 30 or 40 years doing this. And I said, all I really have now is a 40 year long list of what not to do. They were all disaster all the way through. I'm still I'm making them. I Disasters are the best way. Right. But I'm not doing them again. That's yeah. all. That's all I got, you know? So, Well, folks, if you are interested in learning more about seed saving, go to neverbuyseeds.com and take the course with Bill McDormand and, and Greg and on never buying um, seed saving. That is phenomenally just a, a tsunami of great information. You've heard Bill tonight. You know that his desire to help you grow seeds is genuine and enormous. So please check that out, neverbuyseeds.com. As far as the urban farm goes, we'd love it if you could help support us with our patron program. You can go to urbanfarm.org slash patron. Check that out. Help us keep these programs going because, you know, these are programs that Greg is funding out of our, out of our programs to help everything work. We're doing what we can. We do have this recorded. It will be released again as a podcast If you want to participate in our seed chats and get your questions answered live, come join us on our live seed chats. We'd love to have you there. And again, there's also Great American Seed Up. Bill and I are both two of the uh, owners of that company with uh, seed up in a box. Lots of great loving and learning there, including coming up next month in May, our Seed Up Saturday. You can go to seedupsaturday.org to check that out. Sign up for that class learning there's so much that we want to share with you and um and i'm real soon going to have my personal seed list it's mostly heritage and ancient grains now because that's yeah. what I, 
rocking. Um, available on cornvilleseed.com. That's C-O-R-N-V-I-L-L-E-S-E-E-D.com. Cornvilleseed.com. You can sign up for uh, to be on a little e-alert, so I'll let you know when things are, are ready. So That's because we're not sitting still. We just keep doing more and more stuff. And we've got a grain class where they're going to be announcing pretty soon. So if you're interested in grains, keep an eye out. We'll have a link for that too. So grains, guts, and not glory, grains. I, I forgot what we were going to call it. But anyways, check it out. Folks, thank you so much for joining us and catch you, as Greg likes to say, on the flip side. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.